Thanks, Ben. Thanks, everyone. Um, my name's Dan. Good to meet you all. Uh, who was here last time I came and spoke? A few people. Why don't we just address the elephant in the room to start with? My wife punched me in the eye, and um, I've got a... No, not really. I've got conjunctivitis, and I didn't want to let Dex down. So um, I haven't been rude while I've been here. I've just been avoiding everyone because I'm sick of telling people I don't want to shake your hand because I don't want to give you conjunctivitis. And I don't know what's worse, saying my wife punched me in the eye or saying I have an eye disease right now. Um, you might want to burn this mic. Dex. I swear I've been hand sanitizing the whole time I've been here. Um, so yeah, let's all just be uncomfortable together about it and um, we'll try and move past it as mature adults. You know, th this is happening. This is real. Let's just come to peace with my eye right now and we'll, we'll move on together. Um, I better get moving because Dex, for some reason, gave me a real harsh warning about time right now. He's, he's cracking down. Um, I just want to introduce my family. Oh, well, you couldn't you couldn't have stretched the picture. Anyway, that <laughs> this is my family uh, right now. They're slightly taller than that. Um, that's my wife Tracy. Many of you met her last time. Um, she's at a baby dedication right now at another church. And I have a three-year-old daughter and a one-year-old daughter, Alina and Ariel. And um, who knows if I learn to help around the house more, we might have another try for a boy for the elusive boy. But that's my family. Um, <laughs> what did you say? Can't really raise you a bit old. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I love your pastor, Pastor Dex. Um, we went to Indonesia together beginning of the year and um, had a great time. And I learned that he doesn't have banter. Banter's not a part of his system. And it makes me want to victimize him more, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave it. You know, Dexter's so good that at a moment's notice a few weeks ago, I couldn't be bothered preaching the next morning. And because I know he has afternoon church instead of morning church, um, he had made a joke on the Thursday. Um, why haven't you had me come preach to your church yet? So on Saturday night, at night, I messaged him saying, preach at my church tomorrow. And he wrote, even without knowing why, there was a reason he wrote, yep, I'll do it. So what a led. Give it, let's give Pastor Dexter a round of applause. And Dexter, my time starts now. That didn't count. All right. Um, I want to read you guys um, a quote from a movie. Terrible movie, but great quote. I want to read you a quote from 10,000 BC. Who's seen it? Put your hand up if you've seen 10,000 BC. Two people in the room. Two people. Wow. Well, you don't need to see it. The best part is probably this quote. So I'll read the quote um, to you. And in looking at what I want to look at this morning, um, I know it to be Dexter's heart. I know what his heart is for this church and his heart is for the kingdom and for ministry. And so I wanted to bring a message that um, aligns with that and supports that. And in 10,000 BC, it says this, a good man draws a circle around himself and cares for those within. Now, I know that's not very gender inclusive, but it was 10,000 BC, okay? Just, it was a different time. A good man draws a circle around himself and cares for those within. His woman, his children, 
other men draw a larger circle and bring within their brothers and sisters. But some men have a great destiny. They must draw around themselves a circle that includes many, many more. Your father was one of those men. You must decide for yourself whether you are as well. And so a principle that I teach to my church is what I call the big circle principle. And the big circle principle is this, that as believers, we are to increase in capacity and ability to love greater and greater circles that flow out from our lives. And as a church, together, we are to love greater levels of circles that flow out. And so it doesn't come at the neglect of the first circles. And so your family, your household, or even the household of faith, this is a first circle. Because if inside sucks, why would we want anyone to come in, right? There's churches out there that are in turmoil. This one doesn't like that one. This one's got a grudge with that one. This one hates the pastor. And they're strategizing, how can we get more people in here? Why would we want anyone in there? Why would, any, why would they want anyone to come in? But when love is shown in the first circle, it becomes a fertile place for other people to come into. And Christ's love, as it fills the first circles of your lives, his love will overflow naturally into the next circle. This is what I call the big circle principle. So we love our first circles first, our family, those that we consider our people, our church family. And as we love and, and as the love overflows, there's a surplus of love. That's what Christ's love is. And it flows into the next circle. And as that one fills up, it flows into the next circle still. That's what the church of Jesus Christ is all about. And we're on a journey to grow into people that have the capacity and the ability to live those lives. I mean, as someone that does and has done... Um, especially when I was a youth and young adult pastor, as someone who did a lot of mentoring with young people, some people are just struggling to get a life, a, a circle around their own life. They're just, you know, they're, they're 25, haven't got their driver's license yet, and you're, you're trying to help this person to create a circle around their own life so that they can move on to bringing other people into a larger circle. And some people, you know, they're, they're managing their family life well, and so the circle expands. And, and as the circle expands... That's why when you guys look for someone who you want to mentor you or want to speak into your life, I have about three main people who speak into my life. I've looked for people who have a large circle because a large circle speaks to me about capacity and it speaks to me about Christ's love being in their life. I don't want to just look for someone who has a great theological position or, or, or any other criteria. I look for people who have a large circle, whose lives encompass a lot, or who run churches who, churches who encompass a lot. And so that's what big-heartedness is. That's what uh, drives the Christian imperative to reach out. It's a natural overflow of love that starts to encompass more and more people. And so I want to show you a verse where this big circle principle is playing out. In Hebrews 13, verse 1 says this, Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Now, whenever in the word it talks about brothers or brethren or in the NIV where it says brothers and sisters, whenever it uses this term brothers and sisters, it's talking about the church. It's talking about the church of Jesus Christ. Whenever you read the word and it says brothers and sisters, it's talking about 
the church. So here we see the first circle. Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Verse 2, the circle goes out. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by so doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. So we have the church, the first circle. Then he says, embrace strangers, embrace people you don't know. The circle goes wider. Then verse 3, continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison, and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. The circle goes out again to the fringes of society, to the extremes of society. And so the first circle, if it has Christ's love in it, if a church has Christ's love in it, it will naturally flow out. That's why a church will grow. A church will grow when it has Christ's love in it because it won't be able to help but to flow out and encompass and bring more people. The circle will get bigger. And then... As it gets bigger and bigger, the margins, the, the disenfranchised, the, the, the charity programs, all this sort of stuff will start to flow out because God's love, Christ's love overflows. It's an overflowing love. It will naturally flow out. Our households, your individual household, when you see a selfish household, it needs Christ's love in it. When a household has Christ's love in it, that house will turn into a hospital. The car will become an ambulance. It'll become a place of hospitality. It'll become a place of welcoming. It will become a place where people come in and, and, and your couch will become like a counselor's chair. When you drive, it becomes like a, the person naturally finds themselves reclining the seat next to you. Like as if, it becomes like a psychologist's chair. When there's Christ's love flowing in our lives, it naturally flows up. It bubbles out. It encompasses more people. So we're looking at that individually and we're looking at that corporately. Christ's love flows out and encompasses more and more people. Now the book of Acts is the story of the early church and I want to show you something powerful that happens in Acts 1 and 2 that uh, I think a lot of people missed. I've, I've never seen anyone speak on this but it's something that's caught my eye in Acts 1 and 2. And if Acts 1 and 2 is the story of the early church, if it's the story of Christ's intention for his church, and Acts 1 and 2 being the most, the starting point, that foundation point, I want to show you something that I see as a specific focus, a specific calling of what the church of Jesus Christ is meant to be, what it's meant to look like, what it's meant to show the world. In Acts 1, the disciples, they're, they're talking to Jesus. They're asking, when are you going to restore the kingdom? He, he ignores their question. He's apolitical. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And what will that power do? You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. Well, yeah, of course, Jerusalem. It's our capital, the Jewish capital. Let's do it. Judea. Yep, that's our people. Let's do it. Let's reach Judea. And Samaria. Wait, what? Samaria? See, the Jews hated Samaritans. They weren't just indifferent. They weren't just a different people. They hated the Samaritans. And next, and to the nations of the earth. Just so you know, the Jewish people weren't very nation of the earth friendly. They were God's people. There wasn't an overarching need inside to reach the world. That's the Christian imperative. The Jewish people liked their own. They viewed their own as God's people, God's 
chosen people, God's special race. And here, Jesus is telling him, this is what the power of the Holy Spirit will do to you. It'll reach this circle. And they would have been all right with that. It'll reach the next circle. Of course, that, that stands to reason. It'll reach the next circle. Wait, what? It'll reach circles beyond that. We see this big circle principle playing out here. The disciples were being informed that the good news of Jesus Christ was going to be a bigger mission than perhaps that which they were comfortable with. We understand that they hated Samaritans. These weren't just different people. These were enemies. And Jesus is informing them that this is a big circle calling. This is for everyone. The church of Jesus Christ is for everyone. Now, in the very next chapter, in Acts 2, when looking at that, we have the falling of the Holy Spirit upon the early church. And I want to show you what happens. And we need to understand that the Word of God is always very um, specific and deliberate in what it actually writes down. It doesn't just write things for no reason. It writes things for a reason. It's deliberate. It's specific. And in the very next chapter after the disciples are told that this will reach beyond circles that they may be comfortable with. This is going to go beyond your first circle. This is what Acts 2 has to say when the Holy Spirit falls upon them. It says, Utterly amazed, they asked, Aren't all those who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and yes, even Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? Now, I'll tell you something really cool. It never answers that question. Straight away, the very next verse is a man saying, well, these guys are all clearly drunk. It never addresses this question, what does this mean? And so when we have the Holy Spirit falling, and then the very next thing we see is every prominent nation in the Greco-Roman Empire listed and mentioned as being able to be understood by these Jewish Galileans. What does that mean to you? What does that communicate to you? The falling of the Holy Spirit, the very first effect that the falling of the Holy Spirit did to his church is it brought different cultures and languages and people together. It gives us this extensive list of all who could be communicated with. And these were the people who then heard the message and became the first church together. Every tongue, every nationality of the Greco-Roman world represented. What does this mean? What does this mean to you? See, love has to start at home. Love has to start with our own first. But love has become stunted if it remains at home. Love has to start with those you consider your own. It has to start with your own household. It has to start with your own family. It has to start with your own church. 
But if it only remains directed at those you consider your own or consider in your first circle, then that love has become stunted. You know, the word says that even an evil man loves those who love him back. Anyone can have that love. Anyone can love those in their immediate vicinity. In fact, something's wrong with them if they can't love their first circle. Christ's love, it overflows from its natural boundaries. It doesn't play by the rules. It doesn't stay in the alignment that this world would tell it to remain. It overflows. It moves out. It moves onward. It moves to greater and greater places. And I know this is Dexter's heart. Dexter, the great door knocker. I know that Dexter has such a heart to to reach out. And I love that about Dexter. That's why we, we get along. That is a sign of Christ's love functioning well within him. Now, I remember my time in Bible college. Let me tell you something. There was people and they knew everything. They could tell you the meaning of every Greek word. They could, they could tell you the, the exposition of it. The, they, they knew it all. But there wasn't necessarily any functional love within them. And I'm not saying that as a judgment. What I'm trying to do is I'm trying to impress upon you the priority of our God. That his love is to be in our hearts. And when it is, it overflows, it bubbles out and it spreads to other people. How do we do that? Well, the most important thing is to understand that if you're a believer in this place, just what we have in Christ. That we are saved by grace alone. We are saved by belief in the work of Jesus on the cross Alone, And that when he died on that cross, he said, it is finished. And what he has declared finished, let no man declared unfinished in your life. He declares it is finished, meaning there's nothing you can do to add to it. There's nothing you can do to take away from it. It is a completed work. That's why he sat down. He rested at the right hand of the Father, knowing that he had completed the task. And when he says it is finished, it does this beautiful thing that English can't do. It uses this Greek word to telestai. It means it's in perfect tense. It is finished and it is continually being finished. His grace is sufficient now at the moment of belief and ongoing. We don't have a salvation or a justification. We don't have our identity as children of God, as, as God as our heavenly father based on our actions our performance, our behavior, it's based on the work of Jesus on the cross. And when we say, I, I will accept that, I will take that, that's awesome. I would love that in my life. That is the foundation that we build a life of love, grace, mercy, kindness, compassion, and big heartedness on. See, when salvation, when the gift, when what has been done for us is understood, when the enormity of it, when the gravity of it is understood, that will enable us to build lives that reflect the life of Christ. There'll be no mean-spirited in this, or, or at least it won't be able to last. Whenever we deviate and maybe we get a bit cynical, maybe we get a bit negative, when we set our eyes on what has been done for us as individuals, it brings us back into alignment. And the fruit that is produced is beautiful. The fruit that is produced will outreach naturally. It will flow out naturally and it will bring in. 
This is the big circle principle. Now, at my church, we have a very diverse church. And what I've had to communicate to them is talking about that is not a gimmick. So I know this is Dexter's heart, but when, when Ian talks about that, it's not just a gimmick. It's not just something that would look kind of nice or something that you know, gives us a bigger ability to reach a wider range of people. It's the heart of God. It demonstrates who our God is to all who would witness it. I jokingly call our church the United Nations. I've got this joke I do with people where they say, our church is very diverse. Okay. How many Arabs have you got? That's my trump card. See, the nations of the world united under our Heavenly Father reflect his heart. It's Acts 1 and 2 played out. It was the original intention for the church. But here's what I want you to understand. You know, say you got like the underground church in China. You wouldn't go to the underground church in China where there's only mainland Chinese people and say, why isn't your church more racially diverse? It would be a bit of an unfair call to that church, wouldn't it? But does that church contain only people from one social background? Does it contain people from only one political persuasion or one class level? This isn't just a race issue. It's a diversity issue. Diversity of background, class, walk of life, life experience, uh, whether you were born into a Christian household or whether you're a first-generation Christian. No matter, what, no matter what it is, the heart of God is a unity. And it's not a unity based on uniformity. It's a university, unif- uh, unity based on who we worship, based on God. But here's what we need to understand. The Greco-Roman world is very much like our current Western setting, where you can find all the colors of the rainbow, every creed, every culture. And I want to show you what actually got me starting to think about this concept of the church of Jesus Christ as the place where racial harmony should be of a great importance and part of the call. Not just something that looks kind of nice, not just something that gives us a greater ability to reach out, but I want to show you something that actually got me looking at it and thinking about it on a deeper level and made me appreciate the role that a church that's reaching greater circles does to represent God's true heart to the world. And I want to show you a quote by Martin Luther King. It's not long after his famed I Have a Dream speech where uh, he was invited to lecture on race at Western Michigan, uh, at Western Michigan University. And in a question and answer session after the lecture, King said this. Um, he, he stated that Christians in the United States were failing to live out the tenets of their faith. And this was the reason he gave. He said this, this quote, It is appalling that the most racially segregated hour of America is 11 o'clock on Sunday morning. Now, when I read that out to my church, it was dangerous because I make them come at 10. They would love to come at 11. But I'm smarter than that because I know that even if I moved the service to 11, they would still come 30 to 40 minutes late. I'm no fool. In another time when talking about this, he said this, we must face the fact that in America, the church is still the most segregated major institution At 11 on Sunday morning when we stand and sing 
and state, Christ has no east or west. We stand at the most segregated hour in this nation. This is tragic. And when I started to read about this, I, I, I got interested. I wanted to research um, and see if I could find anything on the Australian church. And, and I didn't actually find anything. I didn't find any figures. I suspect that um, the dynamic is different in Australia, but the message still rang clear to me. The message was still something that pierced me as someone who's passionate about our heaven, as someone who's passionate about outreach, as someone who's passionate about the way God is viewed to this world. And I believe there's so many out there that have this view of our, of our beautiful God that we all know and our beautiful salvation. And they, they view our God as distant. They view him as mean-spirited. They view him as, as legalistic. Someone with high expectations who, who is unaccepting. It, all these negative views of God. And even with uh, Martin Luther King's, um, what, what he had to say on this issue, one thing that I could find figures on is that in the US, this statistic hasn't changed much at all. There's been very little headway in addressing this. And the fact is that critics of the church now use this statistic to point at the church and state that it's not a place of unity. It's not a place that unifies. And what I've seen, what I feel like I've really seen in our generation is uh, Christianity give up the kindness card. Christianity give up the charity card. Things that the church was built on and known for. And it was the church's domain, charitable works, looking after the least of these, looking after the margins of society has largely been rejected by the church for, for whatever reasons. It, it no longer has its importance. And now secular organizations have stepped into this place. And in fact, in many quarters, the church is looked at as being, you know, anti-refugee, anti-love, anti-this. You know, we, we're viewed as those who are all about a moral standard. We, we're viewed in this particular way. And, you know, I, I, I believe that we're taking ground back. I'm seeing it as someone who's a pastor when, you know, our church has awesome charity programs we run and, and part of our dream is to, is to build an awesome charity organization and to see it continue to grow. And I've seen this, I've seen this erupting in churches everywhere, this move towards reaching out, reaching beyond, taking back ground that was once ours, taking back ground that the enemy has come in and taken away from us. Weapons that we once held, not that it's things that we do solely just to show a lighter side of God, but it's love overflowing. It's love naturally flowing out and doing what overflowing love does. So when I hear things like that, it's something that pierces my heart. Because what I look at is I look at our society today and I feel like division and difference is everywhere. Everywhere. Now, society is so divided. Politically seems to be the biggest one, but whether it's racially, age, we're in a very ageist society, I believe, whether it's class, whether it's background, walks of life, that there's so much intolerance out there to anyone who's different. There's so much of a need to, to cling to those who are exactly the same. And, and social media has perhaps, if not worse than this pro uh, problem, it's certainly shone a flashlight on it. And we see arguments going, come on, you all read them. Put your hand up for the popcorn crowd. We're the popcorn crowd. We put a picture up of Michael Jackson eating popcorn and we watch fights raging between people. I do it. We all do it. 
We're like, <laughs> and, we, and we look and we see so much division in our world today. So much difference, so much intolerance to anyone who is different than us. And this is where we as believers have a chance to show a different way. We have a chance to show the heart of God. We have a chance to be what he designed us to be. Like I said, unity based on uniformity is not true unity. Unity based on diversity is unity because anyone can be unified with someone who thinks exactly as they think. I believe that marriage is the greatest tool God has given us to work this one out, to work, uh, to work out a unity based on diversity. But it's easy to apply this mindset to those who sit within our first circles. But you see, when that which is truly important to God, which then should be important to us, when that is elevated above every political leaning, every preference, when the heart of God is elevated above everything, greater circles will naturally be reached through an overflow of love. When there's a surplus of love, it spills out and starts to fill the next container. And the church of Jesus Christ has an opportunity in our Western setting, it has an opportunity to show this powerful demonstration of unity and harmony, not just racially, but across political spectrums, across class, across different walks of life, different ways of thinking. The church of Jesus Christ, by its very nature, can show the world who Christ is. See, Christ embraced all. He took darkness, he took light into darkness. He didn't take light to light. He took light to darkness. He embraced the tax collector. He embraced the, the, the woman of ill repute. He hung around with sinners. He even went to Pharisees, those who were open to communicate and to debate with them. He only ever condemned self-righteousness. And there is only one time he got so mad he was moved to physical action when he cleared the temple because the part of the temple that had become cluttered and disrespected, the part of the temple that that was going on in was the court of the Gentiles, the temple's provision for those who were not God's people. That's why he states in Mark 11 when quoting the prophet Isaiah, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. See, we need to go beyond our circle. We need to go beyond what is just natural to us. And natural love doesn't go beyond comfortable circles. But supernatural love does. A love that came for us. A love that died for us while we were still away from him. While we were his enemies. See, we have a God, we have a Savior who went beyond his circle went beyond his people, went beyond those who had it all together, those who considered themselves righteous. And he took what he had and he took it to greater and greater and greater circles. He put a circle around the entire world for God so loved the world that he put a giant circle around it.
And for those who believe, they shall have abundant life, eternal life. Do you know what this word abundant life means or eternal life means? It doesn't mean you're going to live forever. I'm not saying you're not, but that's not what the word means. That's not what it's trying to communicate. We're all spirits. We'll all live forever. It's saying perpetual life, overflowing life, abundant life. You see, if you've got overflowing life, well, then you've got life to spare. It'll flow out to those around you. And as that continues to flow, that abundant life then flows out even further. This is what it is to walk in abundant life. Let me tell you that which unites us is greater than anything that can divide us. See, me and you could be different in every way. We could have completely different views. You could think Tony Abbott was a good politician and a good man. And I can still get alongside you and say, we are unified under Christ. We are unified under one saviour. Sorry, a bit of a joke. I don't know the political leanings of this church. I've got a bit of a left-wing loony church. The word states that unity gives a blessing, offers a blessing, commands a blessing. And true unity is based on God, not uniformity. In fact, any sort of unity that's only managed to base itself on a uniformity is not true unity. It's just the removal of anything that doesn't align. I want to show you something. In Luke chapter 8, how long have I got, Dex? Five minutes, seven. God's number. There we go. Luke 8. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, the manager of Herod's household. It's listing two women here. Now, I want you to know that as well as reaching out, the church, and I, I hate the fact that our world doesn't recognize this, the church elevated the role of women. There are women leaders in the early church. In fact, it was so controversial the way the Gospels were written because a woman's testimony was not valid. Yet here it specifically lists a woman's testimony. In Luke 24, it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. So they were giving testimony to what had happened. See, already Jesus was reaching out beyond. Already he was shattering circles. But here's the biggest thing I want to show you. Mary Magdalene was a prostitute. And Joanna, the wife of Chusa, who was her husband? The manager of the king's household. So here, heading to the empty tomb, we have a prostitute walking next to the wife of the man who managed the king's household. Wow. How many times have we read over that and just brushed over it? What a powerful picture of the heart of God. What a powerful picture of the kingdom. What a powerful picture of who our God is. That these women would walk side by side to the tomb, to the resurrection. When forming the disciples in Matthew 9.9, it says, As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. In Luke 6 verse 13, it says this, When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles. In verse 15, it lists a specific disciple. 
Simon, who was called Zealot. Now, I love this because Matthew is the gospel account of the four gospels. Matthew is the one written to a Jewish audience. And it's that one that he specifically decides to list Jesus walking to a tax collector. You follow me? The gospel designated for the Jewish reader is the one where it's specifically written that he approaches the tax collector and says, you come follow me. See, a tax collector was a collaborator with the occupying Roman forces. They were hated in Jewish societies. They weren't just, my mother-in-law is a tax collector. Actually, she just retired this year. But she's a tax collector, and she hates it every time I'm reading about tax collectors in the Bible because it makes her feel evil. It's a different thing. They were collaborators. They were compromisers. They were making money off their occupied brethren. And then who does he list in Luke? Simon, who was called Zealot. Do you know what a zealot was? A freedom fighter for Jewish freedom against Roman occupiers. So in his disciples, Jesus calls a tax collector and he calls a zealot and he brings them together. Isn't this powerful? And here's what I love. I love going back to Acts 1 like I was telling you. We always seem to think that whatever political persuasion we have, God is with us. You know what? Whatever sins I hate, they're the ones that he really hates too. We look at the sins that we've all got. We've all got our own junk. We've all got our own dirt. And we look at them and, you know, they're not too bad. But that what they're doing or the attitude they've got or that theology or that position or the way that... It's amazing. We always view God as being against that which we're against. And I love this because just before he goes, he doesn't even answer them. So, but I love the way it puts it in there. They're like, surely now you're going to restore the kingdom to us. Surely, Jesus, you've had our political view all along. He doesn't even answer them. Are you going to restore the kingdom now? I want you to go to this circle and in that circle and in that circle and in that circle. Jesus calls all sorts together. People from different backgrounds, different political views, different races. He brings them all together. And then he challenges us to live in unity, to let the church of Jesus Christ be a demonstration to the world of his heart. Ephesians 4 says this, if I could have the band come up. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. Because there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. You see, that which unifies us is more than enough. That which unifies us is sufficient for us to look at one another and say, we are on the same team. We are in the same family. When we focus on His heart and what He's done in our lives, when that becomes our focus, see, the death of self-righteousness causes the overflow of love. That's the way it works. And love, mercy, grace, big-heartedness, kindness, compassion, this starts to flow out in greater and greater quantities to encompass more and more people. And I'm aware that some people would read the Word and they may not view those attributes I just gave. 
as being that which is important to God. Maybe this, a moral standard or, or making sure the world knows who he, who his stand, what his standard is towards their sins. You know, there's all sorts of differing views, but my, my belief, and I, and I know Pastor Dexter shares this, is that when we look at ourselves and we're honest with ourselves about who we are, and then we look to the cross, love overflows. It can't help but overflow. Abundant life follows when we look at the fact that we've been included in his circle. His heart was for all men to come into his circle, every single one of us included. And as we share his heart, our circle just starts to expand. Come on, why don't you stand to your feet right now? I know this message was a message for God because, from God for you guys, because when I asked for them to play the song that I wanted them to play for the altar call, they were already doing it. Was, they were already doing that song. And I was like, awesome, what a sign. But as we sing this song together, as one people, under the same God, blessed with the same salvation, with the same Heavenly Father, all baptized in the same baptism, we share the same hope, the same faith. As we sing that together, I just want you to have your heart set on unity. See, unity starts here. Unity starts in the first circle. Unity starts in the house of faith. Let brotherly love continue, as Hebrews 1 says, or, or love your brothers and sisters in the church. And from there, it flows out. And so as we sing together, I just want you to set your heart on who God is and allow it just to produce that fruit of unity inside your heart. Let's sing.